Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the son of God. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the less and of Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in the Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now, when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoning the centurion. He asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joses, observed where he was laid. In the last several weeks, we've examined the events that led up to the cross of Calvary. We looked at the conspiracy in verse one, the confusion in verse two, the charges leveled against him in verses three through five, the custom of releasing a prisoner in verse six, the choice between Jesus and Barabbas in verses seven through 14, then the chastening in verse 15, the contempt in verses 16 through 20, the cross bearer, Simon of Cyrene in verse 21. And then we spent some time looking at the events at the cross, the cup for the cross in verses 22 and 23, the clothing below the cross in verses 24 through 25, the citation that read over the cross in verses 29 through 32. And of course, the criminals alongside the cross in verses 27 and 28, the contempt for the cross in verses 29 through 32, the cloud covering the cross in verse 33, the cry from the cross in verse 34, the confusion around the cross in verses 35 through 36, and then the consummation, the death of Jesus in verse 37. Now we're told of some of the events, not only that led up to the cross during the cross, but subsequent to the cross, the veil of the temple being torn in verse 38, the tribute offered by the centurion in verse 39, the testimony of the women in verses 40 and 41, and of course, the courage 
displayed by Joseph of Arimathea in verses 42 through 47. In one sweeping chapter, we've seen the servant on trial in verses 1 through 15, the servant mocked in verses 16 through 20, the servant crucified in verses 21 through 41, and now the servant buried in verses 42 through 47. Immediately upon the death of Jesus, we learn of an important news broadcast that had been brought by the temple. In verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 38, read it for yourself. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You'll remember that God commanded Moses to build a veil. In the ancient tabernacle that followed the children of Israel in the wilderness. And there was a veil that was also placed in the temple. So we're going to do a little experiment right now. In order for you to understand just how thick that veil was. What I want you to do is hold out your hands and then touch your thumbs together. Spread your fingers as wide as you can. And that's about how thick the veil was. It was layer after layer after layer. Now I want you to just briefly look up. Look at the top of the ceiling. How high would you guess our ceilings are? Probably 20 feet. That's exactly right. Mas o menos for my Spanish speaking friends. The veil in the temple was 25 feet and almost 10 inches thick. These were thick curtains to block entry into the holy place. The Greek word for veil is kata, petesma. It was a specific Greek word that was used to describe not just the outer veil, but the inner veil, the inner curtain that was between the holy place and what was called the holy of holies. It's the same word in verse chapter 27 of of Matthew, verse 51, Luke 23, verse 45. The death of Jesus tears The curtain and the important part is that the rending of the curtain allows access to the very presence of God. And we have to ask an answer just very quickly. How was this curtain curtain torn? Does it sound like all of a sudden after thousands of years it just sort of gave out? A thread came undone and the whole thing collapsed? This curtain didn't die from natural causes. There was no power on earth that could rip it from the top to the bottom. And by the way, that becomes an indication of who tore the veil. Because clearly the text leads us with the idea that it was torn supernaturally. By the way, there's only two supernatural sources that could have done such a thing. Satan and God. Only the priest could minister in the court. 
and the holy place between where the priests conducted the duties and the holy of holies. This was the place where the high priest could only enter once a year. The veil between men and God was supposed to serve as a reminder that people didn't have unrestricted access to God. For the person who thinks that, well, I can be, I can have access to God. I can go out on the golf course and I can, I can meet with Jesus on the ninth hole. The reality is, guess what? In order to come to God, you have to come to God on God's terms. And guess what? Even though you may not be willing to accept it or believe it, but your sin disqualifies you from the presence of God. No matter how young you are, no matter how old you are, no matter what religious circumstances you grew up in. There was a court of the Gentiles and there was a court for the women and there were a court for the Jewish men. and There was a court for the priests because there, the veil was a kind of divine restraining order. The veil was God's way of saying this far and no further. The veil was a reminder that people didn't have unrestricted access to God. And in order to approach God, you had to have the legal right to do so. You had to have the moral right to do so. And the legal right and the moral right and the spiritual right only belonged to the high priest once a year. Can you imagine the priest or priest on duty that day? Can you imagine... The moment that the high priest was approaching in that particular area, that all of a sudden the curtain is torn from the top to the bottom and you see into the holiest of holies. You see the Ark of the Covenant. You see the mercy seat. What do you suppose the religious leaders did? Do you think they went, oh, wow. By the way. What do you suppose they did? Because as incredible as the supernatural event of tearing the curtain in half is, there's something even more incredible. The religious leaders sewed the curtain back shut. And they continued to offer sacrifice of lambs and they continued to offer sacrifice of goats and they continued to offer sacrifice of doves. They continued the hierarchical structure of the priests and the high priests in our sin. Apart from Christ, we have no legal or moral or spiritual right to God. But the religious leaders, because they didn't accept but rather rejected Jesus and embraced the reality that this was the only way that they thought that they could have a relationship with God, they sewed the curtain shut again. Paul argues in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 verses 15 through 18 that Jesus is our peace who's torn down the middle wall of partition. It was a picture of the wall that separated the Gentile from the Jew in verse 18. Through him, that is Jesus, we both, that is Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit, that's the Holy Spirit, to the Father. And Mark records that the veil is torn from the top. Because that's where... The pressure came from. Have you ever seen a child tear a piece of toilet tissue? That's about how much pressure God had to put 
on the veil. It was an act of God. The death of Jesus, the death of Jesus allows access to the presence of God by all believers. That's what it says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. McDonald calls this a great new era ushered in. It would be an era of nearness to God, not distance from him, unquote. In other words, this tearing of the veil was an opportunity for us with unrestricted access for those who know and love Jesus that you get to approach the Father in the name of the Son. But what else can we conclude from this? And I'm going to suggest to you that God was watching the details of the death of Jesus. The tearing of the veil didn't take place the night before. The tearing of the veil didn't take place when they were placing him on the cross. The tearing of the veil didn't take place when he was suspended between heaven and earth. The tearing of the veil didn't take place between the darkness at noon and the subsequent agony. But apparently it takes place the moment of his death. The event didn't even take place at his glorious resurrection. The tearing of the veil didn't take place by Christian mystics or Jewish terrorists. God did it. God exposed the mercy seat to plain sight. And now there's no barrier between man's desperate need and God's all-sufficiency in Jesus. No wonder Paul told Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And remember what we've already learned, that the death of Jesus assures us that God loves the sinner. The death of Jesus assures us that we're purchased out of the marketplace of sin. The death of Jesus removes all moral hindrance in the mind of God. God to saving sinners from sin and having been redeemed. Remember, God is propitiated. Remember, that's the word that means he is completely satisfied so that human beings can be accepted by God. And now we learn that we have access to God. Friendship and fellowship are our Privileges, but guess what else we learned? There's no further sacrifices for sin. There's no further religious obligations. The sacrifice for sin is complete. The sacrificial system is done away with. If every single bull and every single lamb and every single goat and every single dove that was slaughtered after the death of Jesus becomes a blasphemous statement that God's sacrifice isn't good enough. No wonder the writer of Hebrews says, but Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sin, for all time, sat down at the right hand of God by one offering. He's perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And so guess what? There's no more religion. There's no more sacrifice. There's no more priests. You have access to God by Jesus. You don't have access to God by me. Hey, look, I like you. But friendship and fellowship with me is not the same as friendship and fellowship with God. 
you have friendship and fellowship and access, not just the legal right, not just the moral right, not just the spiritual right, but the relational right that God has given to you. This is what the Bible means when it says, and to them who came to know him, he gave them the right to be called the children of God. Even though I'm the pastor of the church, you typically can't actually just walk in and sit down in my office. You usually have to go past the receptionist. But if you're my wife, if you're my son, if you're my grandchild, guess what? Nobody stops you. You go and you have immediate access. And the Bible says you have immediate access to the father by the son And look what it says in verse 39, the the, the tribute, if you will, of the Roman soldier. He says in verse 39, so when the centurion who stood opposite him, he saw and he cried out like this. That is, he cried out and died and breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. What are we to think of this Gentile soldier's confession? My first, I think, exposure to this probably came in a movie called The Greatest Story Ever Told. Some of you remember John Wayne had a bit part. John Wayne, in that movie, he plays this Roman centurion. He's standing by the cross of Jesus and he says these lines. Truly, this man was the son of God. You have to wonder what. Did he say, what's my motivation? What am I thinking about? What is he saying? You have to understand that this soldier was a witness of the cruelty and the hardship and the carnage that that accompanies the soldier's life. You didn't become a Roman centurion unless you were battle tried and battle tested. Roman centurions like modern marine drill instructors don't cry at sad movies. And the duty of every Roman officer in charge of execution was to remain at his post until the execution was complete. The moment Pilate ordered his execution, this Roman centurion, along with the soldiers, would have accompanied Jesus. They would have marched to Calvary's Hill. This centurion would have been present as he saw him stumble and fall. This centurion would have been present as they affixed his hands to the cross. This centurion would have been present as they rope him and suspend him between heaven and earth. This centurion would have been a witness of everything that was said at the cross, of the darkness that surrounded the cross, the cry from the cross. This centurion would have watched the neighbors as their bones were broken and their legs were broken. This was the same centurion who would have watched as the soldier took a pylum, which is a piece of iron about this size, a attached to a pole and stick it under Jesus's rib cage, puncturing the percardium as blood and water flow. This instructor would have seen every moment of this person's death. Why do you suppose this is important? Because there would have been people who would come along and they would make the foolish, stupid, ridiculous statement that he didn't really die. That somehow he swooned and, and somehow after 
hours on a cross and a punctured heart and in a airless tomb with a two and a half ton rock that somehow he just sort of sprang back to life and go, wow, that was kind of an ordeal, but I'm glad it's over. You would think that no one in their right mind could come to such an idiotic conclusion, but the Bible is going to make sure that the chain of custody concerning the life and now the death and the burial of Jesus would be above reproach. By the way, this is the expert witness that you would call in order to testify. Were you there at his death? Yes. From start to finish. Did you watch every moment that surrounded the death? Yes. Why would this Gentile soldier make such a statement? Some have suggested that Jesus died as a martyr. And that the value of his death is the courage and loyalty he displays and dying over his deeply held conviction. Others claim that he died in order to create some sort of moral effect that somehow people would see his sacrificial life and they would see his sacrificial death and they would be compelled to turn from their sinful behavior and that they would lead a moral life and that somehow his example would compel you to lead a moral life. But the Bible doesn't say that at all. The Bible says that your sin has separated you from God and that your sin in its wickedness, can never go away apart from the sacrifice of Christ. God isn't seeking the reformation of men or even the decision of men, but a transformation of the heart where you go from darkness into light From death into life. You see, human beings need a whole new heart and a whole new life and a whole new way to live that life. And so we go from the tribute of the Roman soldier to the testimony of the women. Look what it says in verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, some whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the less, and of Joses and Salome. It can be pretty confusing when you're reading the Bible. You feel like you might have married into a Hispanic home because everybody is named Mary. And you go, well, how is that even possible? Which Mary is the right Mary? We'll talk about that in just a moment. In verse 41, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in the Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The reason why this becomes important is because, again, you are going to discover that not only do you have access to God, but the reality is that history is. And mystery come together in the death of Jesus. It isn't just a faith filled circumstance where we believe by faith that Jesus died for sin. But the reality is a real Jesus is really going to die. And the testimony of these men and women are going to prove to be an important part when we get to the resurrection. And yeah, I'm going to let it out of the bag. We don't have to wait till next week. Like I said, Jesus is risen from the dead. 
He's going to rise from the dead. The ministry of Jesus included the patient, faithful support of sensitive women. Women were the last witnesses at the cross and they were the first witnesses at the empty tomb in chapter 16, verse 1, which we will see next week. We're told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the cross until the taunts and the condemnation forced both Mary and John to recede. (coughs) It became overwhelming. And so they observed from a distance. But I want to draw your attention in verse 41 to a special word also who also followed him and ministered. To him, the word is diakono or diakoneo. The word minister in the Greek language at first came to meet those who serve or who wait on tables, but it came to mean everyone who serves or service itself. The idea is that these were the faithful women. The NIV translates this properly. These are the women who cared for his needs, meaning food and clothing. And if you're wondering, you're going, well, he's the second person of the Trinity. If he's hungry, why, you know, he can multiply the loaves. He can multiply the fishes. Couldn't, couldn't he just whip something out of thin air? I'm going to suggest to you he could have whipped something out of thin air, but he never did. He never performs a miracle simply to satisfy himself. And when his robe got tattered and when his robe tore, he didn't go, well, you know, I created the heavens and the earth. Return, robe. I'm going to suggest that that didn't happen. That faithful women followed him and ministered to him day in and day out. The Bible's repeated testimony is that the women stayed close with him. This was their loving service to their beloved master. The repeated testimony, the repeated testimony is the repeated testimony is when everyone else was going away, they were drawing forward. Apparently, fear for their lives didn't make them keep their distance. Even though the apostles are in hiding, the devotion of the women point to the fact that they placed their love for Jesus above their own welfare. And so I have a special word for the unbelieving husband and the unbelieving wife who faithfully come to church in spite of the fact their husband or their wife knows and loves the Lord, but they don't. The reason why I want to point something out to you is even if you don't believe the story of Jesus and you don't believe about his life and you don't believe about his death and you don't believe about his resurrection, this little point should offer you insight even if you're an unbeliever. The unbelieving husband who may not embrace his wife's faith should take note because what would cause a woman to risk her husband's wrath and displeasure? What would cause a woman to say, no, I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray and I'm going to fellowship. What would a woman, why would a woman put her marriage and family at risk by coming to church, reading the Bible, praying, 
honoring, loving, serving. It's because not fear of their husband that motivates them, but love for and devotion to and commitment to Christ. We look at this special insight again in verse 42, the tomb of a wealthy man. Look what it says now when evening had come. Because it was the preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. Preparation day. Pro, sabaton, the day before the Sabbath. Parasukeo. That is Saturday. In the Greek language, to this very day, it's the word Saturday. The Jewish Sabbath was from sunset on Friday to sunset on Saturday, which has led many Bible scholars and Bible teachers to believe that this is taking place on a Friday, unless, of course, the Passover is falling in the middle of the week. The sixth day of the week is still called, like I said, Parasukeo. I don't have time to get into the idea of a Wednesday death or a Thursday death or a Friday death, because that's not the point of the passage. Jesus dies sometime after three o'clock. The point that the passage makes isn't that it's Wednesday, Thursday or Friday. The point that the passage makes is that there's a few short hours to remove the body of Jesus from the cross, to wash his body, to carry it to the tomb, because I need you to understand something. Do you think that the Roman soldiers care about the body that's on that cross or the dead body that comes down off the cross? Does any Roman in this crowd think a dead Jesus is a threat? Not a single one. It was the Roman custom when you died a criminal's death on a cross. The custom was threefold. Number one, the dead body remained tied to the wood until it became distended and bloated and started to decompose and then was eaten by vultures and animals. Or it was taken from the cross and thrown in the garbage heap. The Romans don't care about what happens to his body. Do the Jews care? Some of them do. Because it's the day of preparation. And if anyone has to touch this body, it renders them unclean. And they will be unable, according to the Jewish law, to participate in the Passover. As a matter of fact, if the sun sets, then... They have no way of getting the body off of the cross until the Sabbath is complete. Hence the need for haste. It has to be done quickly. It has to be done quickly. Now, I want you to think about this because it's going to make an important point later on, because there are going to be accusations that, number one, he didn't really die. Does he really die? Yes. Yes. Number two, that somebody switched the bodies. Possible? That is not possible. Number three, that the disciples came and stole the body. 
Well, you see, this could be a problem for the observant Jew and some of the religious leaders because, remember, some of them realized that Jesus talked about coming back to life. They don't even for a moment believe that he will. But is there the possibility for shenanigans? I know that's an Irish word, but that was last week. Okay. Now, look what it says in the text. Joseph of Arimathea a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. The Lord prompts two men to preserve and protect and bury the body of Jesus. Nicodemus, who we're introduced to in John chapter 3 and later, of course, in John chapter 19, verse 38 and 39 and 40 and 41 and 42, we learn that Nicodemus participates with Joseph of Arimathea in taking Jesus down from the cross. Look what it says. Joseph is called prominent, eskumenon, meaning honorable, of high standing, the noun, boletes, Council only here and in Luke chapter 23, verse 50, it means that he is an honorable, high standing member of what looks to be the great Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. So his credentials are impeccable. Again, the chain of custody of the Bible of, of the body, it doesn't go from one of the religious zealots. It goes to a member of the Sanhedrin. Of the Jewish establishment. Mark adds. Who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God. He's an honorable man. He's waiting for the kingdom of God. We can glean several facts from the gospel writers. Joseph is from Arimathea. We don't know exactly where that is. We know that he's become a permanent citizen of Jerusalem. He's on the council. He's bought a tomb in Jerusalem for his own burial. We know he's an honorable counselor. We know he's a good and just man, according to Luke 23, verse 50. He's waiting for the kingdom of God, according to Mark. He's rich, according to Matthew 27, 57. He didn't vote for Jesus's death in the Sanhedrin. We learned that from Luke chapter 23, verse 51. In Luke chapter 23, verse 51, it says... He had not consented to their decision and deed. We also learn that he was a disciple. A secret disciple. Fearing his fellow Jews. In John chapter 19, you might turn there real quick and look at verse 38. In John chapter 19, verse 38, it says, after this, Joseph of Arimathea being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took the body of Jesus. Something has changed. 
Something has changed inside of his heart and something has changed in his circumstance. The death of Jesus, the surrounding circumstances of Jesus, the trial of Jesus, the torture of Jesus, the execution of Jesus, the humiliating possibility of the disposal of his body proves to be too much. And look what Mark says. He exercises courage. Mark Twain can hardly be called a believer by any stretch of the imagination, but he wrote, It's curious that physical courage should be so common in the world and moral courage so rare. Ambrose Redmoon said, quote, Courage is not the absence of fear, but the judgment that something else is more important than fear. Courage doesn't mean the absence of fear. It means that in spite of the fear, you're willing to make a different decision. Courage is by very definition doing what you're afraid to do, but you have to do. In the first service, someone gave you a card quoting John Wayne. Courage means you're afraid, but you saddle up anyway. You get on the horse and you ride. He's allowed access to Pilate. Apparently his position in the Sanhedrin gives him permission to access the Roman governor and he seeks permission for the body of Jesus. Why does that take courage? I'm going to suggest to you for several reasons. Number one, Pilate is clearly upset with the religious leaders. He is disgusted by this whole thing. Pilate has already conceded to the demands of the mob and the sophisticated manipulation of the religious leaders. Pilate despises them. So what would cause him to concede to the request? What causes the change in Joseph? What makes him say, I am going to do this, I'm going to go forward? Joseph had experienced the circumstances, the darkness, the earthquake, the torn veil. Did his mind begin to connect the dots? Did Joseph understand the claims of Jesus and the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah? Why is all of this going to take courage? Remember, 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 the religious leaders hate Jesus and kill Jesus. And now Joseph is going to take a public stand. He's going to come out in the open. Why is this important? Again, because of these two brave men. If they hadn't stepped forward, the body might have been disposed of in some humiliating manner. And that wasn't a part of God's plan. God's plan was that he was going to be placed in a tomb. And that that tomb was going to be found empty. The Lord was going to make sure that that part of the message of the gospel was not due to wishful thinking or an inaccessible belief system. But the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus is going to be rooted, like I said, not in mystery, but in history. The death and the resurrection of Jesus doesn't belong to the exclusive domain of faith and wishful thinking. This becomes an important part of the point. The death of Jesus 
isn't dependent upon what you think. You may think there was no such person as Jesus, but he was a historical person. Even the wicked critics of Christians and Christianity who despise Christians and Christianity are willing to concede that a real Jesus lived and a real Jesus died. They might be confused of the meaning of his life and the purpose of his death, but they believe it. The death and the resurrection of Jesus belongs to history. And in verse 44, it says, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. Pilate seems to express some skepticism that Jesus would die so quickly. Remember, victims sometimes held on for days. They didn't typically die from blood loss. It was exposure to the elements, dehydration. Sometimes blood loss was an issue. Sometimes shock was an issue. Sometimes the victim's legs were broken to hasten death. Jesus died not of exposure and not of dehydration and not blood loss and not shock. Jesus died from a broken heart. The weight of sin and its inevitable separation and judgment from God. Jesus bears what is unbearable. Jesus experiences what cannot be experienced by anyone else. And the terrible pain and the the terrible sorrow and this amazing circumstance apparently causes his heart to burst. And it breaks over sin. And the sinner, and the centurion assures him, no, he's dead. Are you sure? The centurion was no stranger to death. He knew the difference between life, and he knew the difference between death. In verse 45, it says, so when he found out from the centurion, and by the way, Mark translates this word centurion. It's the Latin equivalent of which we get that word. Usually in the Greek language, it's hectonarchos, which means a hundred. And then the chief or the ruler over a hundred, a hecaton, a hundred, archos, ruler. But here Mark uses the Latin version centurion, which has been translator, transliterated completely in our language. But again, note the chain of custody, cross. Joseph, tomb. There's no time to make a switcheroo. Verse 46, then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen, laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Joseph personally removes the body of Jesus from the cross. Joseph and Nicodemus wrap his body in freshly bought linen and spices. He risks the animosity and hatred from the religious leaders. He demonstrates care and compassion. I don't think it would be too far of a stretch to say he exercises even what you and I would call affection. He treats this man as if he's his own flesh and blood, as if he's his own precious. Beloved son, 
And the act leaves no doubt as to where his love and his loyalty and where they lie. And Joseph will automatically be eliminated from participating in the Jewish Passover because the handling of the dead man would have rendered him unclean. And yet, as history would have it, Joseph and Nicodemus become the first participants in the real Passover. They're the ones who take the lamb that has been slain for the sin of the world and wrap his body. And doesn't the passage sound familiar? Wrapped in linen and laid in a roughly hewn rock. Isn't that reminiscent of his, de- of his birth? Jesus was taken at birth and wrapped in linen and placed in the feeding stall of an animal. Most people believe it wasn't a manger made out of wood, but rather it is a rock-hewn manger that would have been used in the Middle East at that time to feed animals. It's going to take courage. The courage to make an unashamed, the courage to make an unapologetic, the courage to make a commitment to Christ. Joseph will risk position. He will risk esteem. He will risk wealth. He will risk religious traditions. He's going to risk it all in order to care for the body of Christ. And people are going to put pressure on him and say, but wait a minute. You're a member of the Sanhedrin. You're a religious Jew. You are a person who has grown up in the traditions of Judaism. How can you risk it all? But that's exactly what he'll do. Because God prepared him for that moment. Just as God has prepared you for this moment. In the circumstance that you find yourself in. And look what it says in Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Why is this important? Again, the chain of custody and testimony, because when the objections begin to take place, by the time we get into chapter 16, what really happened? What really happens concerning the death of Jesus, the chain of custody of the body of where it goes from point A to point B and the subsequent resurrection? Because guess what? Pilate asks the wrong question. It isn't just simply, is he dead? Pilate forgets to ask, do we have good assurance that he'll stay that way? There is a sign in Grossmunster Church in Zurich where Zwingli preached. The sign reads, by God's grace, do something courageous. Isn't that interesting? By God's grace, do something courageous. I think you know what courage is. It's divine nerve. Courage is a willingness to go forward in Christ's command. Courage is a willingness to obey Jesus in spite of all of the obstacles. Courage is a willingness to go forward with Jesus in spite of relationships that you have where people aren't happy with your decision to know and love and serve Jesus.
Courage is a willingness to come out into the open and do what's necessary to love Him, to honor Him, serve Him. Remember what Joshua wrote? He remembered the words of Moses in Joshua chapter 23, verse 6 through 8. He said, therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right hand or the left, or lest you go among these nations, those who remain among you. You shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them, nor to bow down to them, but you shall hold fast to the Lord your God. This day. You've watched Jesus live. You've watched him perform miracles. You've become a participant. In the trial and the execution. You have. Watched. As he dies. If ever there was a time for you to take courage and to take heart and to make the bold decision to follow Jesus, it's now. But remember, God isn't just looking for a decision. He's looking for conversion. Not just the decision to go in a different direction, but the decision that results in conversion, knowing that Death has now become life and darkness has become light and that you have made a full and final commitment to know him, to honor him, to love him, to serve him, to walk with him. Joseph and Nicodemus will take him to the place of his own tomb, Joseph will. Does he have any idea what's going to happen next week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you again for your grace and your love. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, we think we thank you that you're completely satisfied with the death of Jesus, that in Jesus, you see the satisfying solution to the problem of sin and the need no more. For sacrifice. The need no more. For priests. That we are a kingdom of priests, men and women who have the ability to come to you on the basis of friendship and fellowship with Jesus. And Lord, if ever there was a time to not sew the curtain back shut. Lord, I know that sometimes we make the choice to take religious obligations and religious rituals and religious traditions and sew them back together as if that is what is honoring to you. But Lord, we know that there's nothing more honoring than to believe that Jesus has been sent by God as the satisfying solution to the problem of our sin. And so, Lord, I pray for that man. I pray for that woman who has never made that decision. 
who's never experienced that conversion, who has wickedly decided that they want to know God on their own terms, not realizing that their sin has kept them far, far away from the true and living God of the Bible. So, Lord, we pray that they would turn from their sin and that they would turn to the Savior. That they would embrace Jesus as the full, satisfying, final solution to the problem of sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.